Welcome back to Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and I'll be the host of the next hour of programming. On this month's show, we're going to tackle a very unique and nuanced subject in the world of energy and climate, small island states. Small island states are at the forefront of some of the biggest challenges we face when it comes to global warming, extreme weather events, energy poverty, and energy access. We're going to have interviews with the U.S. Ambassador to Grenada. We're going to have interviews with technology companies, finance organizations, and individual entrepreneurs that are working in the general field related to small island states. This is one of the most interesting episodes I think we've put together to date, and our first interview with Angus Friday, the U.S. Ambassador for Grenada, is one of the most interesting interviews and most insightful commentary on what's happening in our world today as it relates to energy and climate change issues. Without further ado, here's Angus Friday. Hey there, Enernerds, it's Kaylee Taylor, co-founder of Student Energy here, and this is This Month in Energy, the segment of the show where I take you through the biggest stories in energy for this month. Here's This Month in Energy for March 2016. For the second year in a row, the global growth of carbon pollution remained flat even as the economy continued to expand. The International Energy Agency said surging deployment of renewable power, especially wind, drove the plateau, with renewables accounting for 90% of new electricity generation in 2015. Doubling the share of renewables in the global energy mix to 36% by 2030 could save the world economy up to $4.2 trillion a year, says new research by the International Renewable Energy Agency, or IRENA. The report said the cost of doubling the renewable share by 2030 would be about $290 billion a year, but the average net savings from reducing pollution and emissions on human health and agriculture would be between $1.2 trillion and $4.2 trillion. China is surging ahead in switching to renewables and away from coal. 2015 saw the country's solar capacity up 74% and wind energy capacity up 34% compared to 2014. Meanwhile, its consumption of coal dropped by 3.7% with imports down by a substantial 30%. China's lead climate negotiator believes the country will far surpass its 2020 target to reduce carbon emissions per unit of national wealth or GDP by 40 to 45% from 2005 levels. South Africa has opened the continent's first ever solar-powered airport in the Western Cape. George Airport, which serves over 600,000 passengers annually, has launched a clean energy project which, during its first phase, will contribute around 40% of the airport's electricity needs. Once completed, the airport is expected to be totally independent from the national grid. This month, U.S. President Obama and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced a wide range of environmental initiatives to combat climate change, expand renewable energy, and protect the Arctic. The most notable commitment outlined in a joint statement by the leaders is a plan to reduce potent methane emissions from the oil and gas industry by 40 to 45% below 2012 levels by 2025. 6.5 megawatts of floating solar energy consisting of 23,000 solar PV panels was unveiled in the United Kingdom this month on the Queen Elizabeth II Reservoir about 20 miles from London. That's just in time for the Queen's 90th birthday. And that's This Month in Energy.
Angus Friday is the Grenadian ambassador to the United States based in Washington, D.C., and he's going to do a detailed overview of small island states and their role within the larger global conversation about climate change. So welcome to the show, Angus. Uh, Well, thank you very much for having me. So before we get going, I've heard a rumor uh, about how you transport around Washington, D.C. that I would love to to share with our our listeners. So uh, how do you travel around Washington, D.C. when you have to go in between meetings? (laughs) Well, quite often I use my bike. I have an old Dutch bike um, that I'm very fond of, and it gets me around Washington, D.C., Washington, of course, is a very bike-friendly city, and so it's easy sometimes to, and quicker, just to get on the bike and uh, go from one meeting to the next. But that's uh, when weather permits, of course. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a full-time cyclist myself, uh, but again, not in, in the harshness of the Canadian wintertime. So uh, I, I really appreciate that there are diplomats out there that are living the, the um, and embracing the idea of alternative modes of transportation in their day-to-day life. So uh, I wanted to first, yeah, kick things off and share that with our listeners. So that's a great story. Yeah. Excellent. And, and so the reason we wanted to have you on the show today was that this entire episode is really themed around the idea of exposing our global audience to small island states. It's, it's a, a term that's used to encapsulate a number of different nations, um, and, and small island states have been increasingly important in the global conversation around climate change and how we mitigate and adapt to it. And so to kick things off, can, can I get you, can I borrow you and your expertise to sort of explain to our listeners what are small small island states, who do they represent, um, and, and what are some of the issues that small island states face in regards to climate change? Sure. Well, uh, the thing to recognize, of course, is that there are thousands of islands around the world. But when we say the small island states, we're generally referring to about 44 nation states that are independent countries. And these are islands in the Pacific uh, around Africa, in the Indian Ocean, <clears throat> and of course around the Caribbean. And uh, together they have been organized uh, for well over 20 years now as AOSIS. That's the Alliance of Small Island States. And they're organized this way at the United Nations. And what they do is to come together to uh, agree upon a common negotiating position for climate change and for other areas such as uh, sustainable development. And they've been quite effective at driving change uh, within what's called the UNFCCC or the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And uh, to the extent that they've been called the conscience of the convention. Mm-hmm. And, and you yourself were the chairman of AOSIS at one point in time, correct? That's right. That's right. I was proud to serve as as chairman in 2007 and 2008. And and what led to the formation of AOSIS? So you mentioned that this has been around for 20 years, which uh, maybe coincidentally or not is approximately the timeline um, through which we've been working through the UNFCCC process. And so maybe give a bit more background on sort of what led to the the formation of AOSIS and, and this coordination amongst the, the 44 nations and small island states of the world. Sure. Uh, it was actually as far back as 1987 when uh, President Gayoum of the Maldives uh, was very concerned about the low-lying islands and what was then called global warming, what that would do in terms of rising seas. I've actually been out to the Maldives. 
and the, the, uh, many of the islands aren't any higher than the desk you're probably sitting at right now. And so there's a real concern that um, they have about 1,200 islands, 210 of which are inhabited, that many of these islands will be overwhelmed by, by warming seas. And so they uh, began to um, uh, push the idea of the islands coming together, and this was then consolidated in 1992 at the time of the Rio Convention. That's when uh, EOSIS really uh, came together uh, as a force. And uh, and they've been negotiating as a force ever since. Mm-hmm. And and you bring up sort of the issue around um, low-lying islands and, and the, the, the sort of question around the seeming inevitability around sea level rise. And so is that the primary um, issue in with respect to climate change that small island states are facing? Or, or is that one of several issues that small island oh, states it's face? It's certainly one of several issues. I think the most immediate uh, impacts that, uh, and, and severe impacts that the islands are feeling are, of course, the intense cyclones and hurricanes. Uh, just recently, of course, uh, you know, we had Hurricane Winston uh, tear through Fiji, the island of Fiji, um, you know, really causing a lot of destruction. I think about 42, 43 people died, then uh, about... Uh, you know, 51,000 people are still in shelters, about 134 schools destroyed. Um, damages worth about $472 million, about 10% of, of their GDP. That's just one small example, a small and recent example, uh, which took place during February. Um, but these events are becoming all too uh, familiar for, uh, for the islands. And as I said, the, the devastation is, 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 is severe. Um, we also had, of course, you know, the Solomon Islands and Tuvalu and Vanuatu were severely impacted by uh, Cyclone Pam in 2015. And uh, I think for, you know, for Vanuatu alone, they lost about uh, 16 people. And about 90% of the buildings, uh, you know, were damaged. So uh, I think in Tuvalu, about 45% of people were displaced just from the storm surge. So, you know, these are some examples. Um, In 2015, uh, uh, we also had um, Tropical Storm Erica, which hit Dominica. And uh, that caused damages worth uh, uh, 50% of GDP. And this is a tropical storm now, not a not a full hurricane, and it was really from the from the rains and everything else. And of course, Grenada is no stranger to uh, hurricanes and cyclones. Uh, prior to 2004, Grenada, my home country, was considered to be below the hurricane belt. And in 2004-2005, we had two successive hurricanes. The first one alone, Hurricane Ivan, uh, which struck in 2004. Uh, caused damages worth 200% of GDP, 200%. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a a comparison. Let's take Hurricane Katrina, which was certainly one of the most severe hurricanes ever hitting the United States. That caused uh, damages worth less than 3% of the U.S. GDP. Uh, Hurricane Sandy, which hit in New York and New Jersey, that caused damages worth less than 1% of the 
of the U.S. GDP. But of course, the damages that that both of those caused were were significant for for for, for the United States. Mm-hmm. So you can well imagine what it's like when these hurricanes come through and cause uh, you know damages between ten percent to two hundred percent of your GDP. So this is the mm-hmm. Uh, the most glaring threat, I would say, faced by the small island states right now is that of the uh, severe storms, uh, storm surges, uh, hurricanes and cyclones. Mm-hmm. And, and to put that in context, uh, I'm Canadian and, and our the Canadian GDP last year uh, was about 1.8 trillion uh, US dollars. So we're talking uh, in the order of magnitude of a $4 trillion um, natural disaster happening in Canada to, to equate to some of what's going on there. So it's just, Indeed. it's truly staggering um, the impact that that can have. And so um, I want to sort of move into the, the stage. You, you mentioned already um, this idea of the small island states being the global conscience of some of the, the global negotiations and discussions around climate change. Sure. And I wanted to press a little bit more to get a sense from you of, of what what has been the role and, and what have been some of the successes of small island states um, in putting climate change on the agenda and sort of, and, and what to what degree do you claim some, uh, some win out of the most recent COP21 event in Paris? Sure. Well, I think it's no secret that, um, uh, you know, one of the big successes of COP21 was what was called the High Ambition Coalition. And that was actually led by the... Uh, by the foreign minister for the Marshall Islands. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's an example of, you know, the islands taking leadership uh, to, you know, to to, to sort of drive a high ambition coalition. And this is actually what led to the very successful outcome that that we saw in, uh, you know, in in Paris. But uh, that's not to take anything away from the French at all, actually. The French, uh, I think it should just be noted, the French diplomacy was, was really stellar. And I think for people going to these COPs for so many years, uh, it, was one of the, it was one of the best uh, conference of the parties for climate change, uh, you know, in, in, in recent memory. Mm-hmm. So, but uh, certainly the, the islands had a, a huge impact on, on the success of, of, of the outcome. And and in your experience, how do small islands sort of punch above their weight class? So you look at the 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 sort of political and economic uh, might of the world, and sort of your traditional players, um, your United States's and your China's of the world, um, and, and a lot. And, and being at COP twenty one, we saw that a lot of the conversation was initially focused around those groups. But to your point, you had these nations like the Marshall Islands that were coming through and, and seemed to really capture a lot of attention and focus, and really push uh, the the agenda to being more ambitious. And so maybe if you could walk us through a little bit of of how that happens, like how do small sure. island states sort sure. of negotiate and, and create that sort of buy-in amongst uh, larger global audiences? Well, I think, you know, the first thing to say is that, of course, the islands are, are highly, highly motivated. I mean, this is an existential issue for island states. So the negotiators don't show up at these negotiations, uh, you know, thinking that, well, this, you know, this conversation going can go on for another 20 years, and it's okay. Uh, the islands are feeling the impacts already. And so there's a, um, a high degree of political will um, and expectation um, for the negotiators that they will go to these negotiations and bring back uh, something positive. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the second thing to say, of course, is that the narrative and, and the story is very compelling uh, because you have nation states that, um, you know, if they were to disappear, uh, would no longer exist. And so you have countries like Kiribati, for example, you know, negotiating tracts of land uh, with Fiji, you know, to move their people. Um, I think this is quite heart-wrenching for a lot of people around the world to read about. And so we do have friends in terms of uh, many international NGOs and, of course, the press. <clears throat> and the, the NGOs and the press pick up on the, the stories and the narratives that come from the islands, and they help to reverberate that message, uh, you know, through the halls of the negotiations. And that provides a, a huge degree of help. The other thing to say is that the islands are not alone, and quite often we find that we have a common position with the LDCs, that's the lesser developed countries. And so when you get the small island states and the LDCs negotiating together, it means you've got uh, over 50 countries negotiating together as a bloc. You add the African Union to that, um, sort of coming in with their way to agree on some of those points. And then, you know, you have over half of the, uh, of the UN General Assembly mm -hmm. um, taking up a, a similar position. So, uh, you know, all of those things help to, um, you know, to make the, the negotiations powerful. One is the uh, compelling message and the persuasiveness of the negotiators. Two, I think the, um, uh, the sort of coalition of, of other actors which includes the NGOs and the press, and then, of course, the um, uh, coalitions of parties that uh, coalesce around the views of the small island states. Mm -hmm. And you bring up the, the conversation around the narratives and sort of some of the, the heart-wrenching stories that exist. Um, and, and you brought up this this sort of concept that, that island states are currently negotiating tracts of land with more landlocked nations that have um, are sort of less exposed to the impacts of climate change. Can you maybe walk through some of our listeners through some of the countries that are actively pursuing the, those conversations right now? Because because I definitely get the sense that people think that that's almost a myth, that countries are, are, are doing that more as a PR stunt than as something that's actually happening. And so I would love your perspective on, on how real that challenge is and, and how close you think we are to sort of significant numbers of, of specific nations moving to new land um, yeah. because of climate change. Well, I would say certainly for the Atoll Islands, uh, you know, this is a very real issue. Um, uh, so Kiribati, you know, is, 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 is one of them. But, you know, countries like Vanuatu, for example, um, sorry, Tuvalu, um, you know, it, this is a, a very real issue for them as well. If you, if you were to look at a, uh, a satellite map of a country like Tuvalu, I mean, it's, it is really just a, a very thin sandbar um, uh, on an atoll, um, uh, you know, that, that, that can go under. And so uh, these, these nations are really concerned and are looking at options. They're look, uh, having negotiations with, uh, with Australia, with New Zealand to move some of their people. Don't forget that some of these countries are not just one island, but they're tens of islands or hundreds of islands. And so, um, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the case that 100% of them are in immediate danger. But where some of the smaller outer islands are in danger, people are having those conversations. 
the Maldives, um, just to give you another example, one with, with which I'm a bit more familiar, um, as I said, 1,200 islands, 210 of which are inhabited. And they recognize that what they would need to do is to create safer islands and try to get uh, people from some of the outer islands to coalesce onto, voluntarily, of course, um, onto islands which can be made safer. And uh, the capital island of Mali, for example, you know, they have a breakwater um, going around the entire island uh, just to protect against storm surge. Uh, and right next to it, there's an island called Hula Mali. And they spent tens of millions of dollars to raise this island, uh, you know, a further sort of three, four feet above sea level. It's a massive land reclamation job to, you know, to do that. Um, but, of course, on that island, they can then put, you know, hospitals, schools, uh, uh, more sort of condensed uh, housing, uh, which takes away some of the the sort of ideal uh, spaced out island living, but it's something that they're having to do and they're spending very real money uh, on it, um, uh, not only as we speak, but they, they've already spent quite a lot of money to, to do just that. Mm-hmm. And and it's just such an interesting geopolitical challenge as well, that how, how do you... Um, you're sort of forcing these nations to spend tens of millions to hundreds of millions of dollars on uh, sort of engineering and safety measures for a problem that they had almost no part in creating in the first place. And so uh, it's just such an interesting, small island states, I think, represent such an interesting conversation when we look at our global energy system and our global climate system and sort of how we discuss things like equity and and how we work on um, sort of attacking this problem from a global perspective, because those those are very real problems that uh, almost no other nation in the world will have to deal with that level of, of sort of engineering and safety requirements that you're going to have in some of those small island nations. Yeah, and I think equity is a key issue. And, uh, you know, you've had, you know, very effective voices such as uh, Mary Robinson, the former president of Ireland, for example, you know, with a sort of climate justice campaign. Uh, which has been helpful in getting the message across that, uh, you know, there's a real issue of equity, fairness, and justice here uh, that that is at stake um, for all the reasons that you've mentioned, you know, the least responsible but uh, is seeing the most impact. And just to give you a sense, you know, the, the types of funding that's available for uh, for climate change really uh, doesn't even begin to scratch the surface in terms of some of the engineering that would need to be done for uh, some of these islands. It it does not begin to scratch the surface. And this is one of the key concerns. So uh, plan A uh, has got to be to um, uh, do the most we can in terms of mitigation globally. Uh, And plan B, of course, would then be uh, adaptation. But uh, I think there's a real sense. The World Bank came out with a report uh, a few years ago now uh, called the Four Degree Report, showing and this was prior to to uh, uh, Paris, of course, but showing that the world was basically on a, a pathway towards four degrees. Now, even with the commitments we've had so far in Paris, it doesn't get us to the uh, to the two degrees. We know we're sort of uh, just past the one degree mark, and already there's. You know, we're seeing considerable impacts. So imagine what would happen when we get to two degrees. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this is why, you know, the islands have said, you know, 1.5 to stay alive. So even to getting to two degrees is is too much. So uh, the islands have really called for uh, stepped up efforts on mitigation and, uh, you know, new technologies. Well, I think just deploying some of the existing technologies for renewable energy, um, you know, is a great start. Mm-hmm. And and what are some of the activities going on within your home country? So um, as the ambassador for Grenada, obviously, this is a major sort of foreign policy uh, objective. But maybe if you could give us uh, a bit more background on, on how a country like Grenada um, deals with both the mitigation and the adaptation conversations when it comes to an issue like climate change. Sure. Uh, well, let me start with the adaptation Um, Now, after the hurricane in Grenada, obviously Grenada got itself very organized in terms of uh, its disaster risk management preparedness, Um, and there have been a lot of activities working with the World Bank and others to ensure that the island is properly prepared, Uh, ensuring that proper building codes are in place, that people are following these, and that houses are being built in such a way that uh, should there be another hurricane, uh, we wouldn't have as much damage. As I mentioned in the last hurricane, in the 2004 hurricane, we uh, 90% of the homes were, were destroyed, 90%. And even without, uh, even out without these building codes, you know, people looked around the island and said, you know what, I noticed that, you know, someone with a hip roof seems to have done better than people... Uh, you know, with these uh, flat roofs. And so, uh, you know, the, the citizens themselves began making adjustments in terms of how they choose to build their homes. But we're still not at the place where a country like Bermuda is, for example. In Bermuda, they have a per capita income of about $75,000. And most buildings in Bermuda have concrete roofs uh, so that Bermuda can function the next day. In countries like Grenada, where um, our uh, uh, purchasing parity uh, GDP uh, per capita income is about uh, at the 12,000 mark, um, we don't have that luxury. So the best we can do is uh, have the right designs for roofs for the time being. <clears throat> now, in addition to things like that, uh, we've been doing a lot on climate smart agriculture. In the Hurricane Ivan, we lost uh, 80% of our crops. So we've been reassessing these nutmegs. Grenada was the world's second largest producer of nutmegs and still is Mm -hmm. after Indonesia. But our nutmeg crops really were not climate resistant at all. So we've engaged with India to look at other strains of of nutmeg trees that that, uh, uh, might be better anchored uh, in the soils in a hurricane. So we've done a lot of on climate smart agriculture, a lot on uh, building codes on roads. Uh, when we build roads, we now put uh, you know very good drainage in place, and then we're doing other things as well. We've had a big uh, sea wall and sea defense program following Hurricane Lenny in uh, in the late 1980s. Uh, sorry, in, in the 1990s, and uh, uh, you know which has been helpful. Um, other things we're doing is just, of course, preparedness and, you know, just making sure that we're, we have the management uh, systems in place for, uh, for, for preparedness. Mm-hmm. Now, in addition to adaptation, um, Grenada is doing, uh, taking steps on mitigation. But the first thing I want to say about mitigation is that 
when you add up the the emissions of islands around the world, you know, it comes up to sort of less than 2% Mm -hmm. of total global emissions. So for each island, um, you know, the actions that it'll take will have minimal impact. But psychologically, the islands would like to have the impact of showing the way and saying, no, 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 we may not be uh, uh, polluting a lot, but we're going to lead the way in terms of mitigation. We're going to lead the way in terms of uh, renewable energy. Mm-hmm. So many islands have uh, programs, uh, wind energy, solar energy, geothermal energy, that are underway as we speak. But there is another reason for that, and that is that the, uh, well, prior to the recent drop in petrol prices, uh, in gas prices, uh, you know, islands were just spending so much on fossil fuel importation, and we still are, even with the even with the lower uh, gas prices. So um, it's a win-win-win, really, for us by going to renewable energy. We send the right message, uh, we save money, and we do the right thing from uh, you know from a global perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, even just touching back on some of the the conversations around adaptation, it's just it's such a unique set of problems and challenges that small islands have to deal with res- with respect to other nations. Where uh, in Canada, in the U.S., and, and across Europe, the conversation is say, okay, how do we change the way our grid is electrified, and how do we make that more sort of uh, efficient and clean from an input yep. perspective? And 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 a big part of that is driven by a moral obligation around climate change as opposed to pure economics. But it's not it's not the same level of trying to figure out different strains of one of your fundamental export crops so that it can be more resistant to hurricanes and cyclones. It's just a totally different um, sort of depth of problem that sort of is pervasive not only um, with the specific climate change issues, but that's sort of a major economic driver of the country that that is also sort of at risk when it comes to issues like climate change. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I would agree. And, uh, you know, this is why, of course, the capacity of islands to cope with climate change is, is also one of the key things. So, um, uh, you know, this is one of the things that islands also ask for is capacity building and technology transfer uh, to be able to deal with uh, some of those challenges. Mm-hmm. Well, th- that brings to a close the, the questions that I, I had for you today, Angus. Is there Are there any other thoughts or conversations that you wanted to share with our listeners as, as they're learning about Smile Island states and some of the both challenges and opportunities that they face? Sure. I mean, I think in addition to uh, climate change, the islands are very motivated around the whole issue of sustainable development. Uh, because, of course, if we get sustainable development right, then, um, you know, it contributes to our resilience and our ability to deal with with climate change. And so uh, the green economy is one of the key pieces that the, uh, that the island uh, states are very, um, uh, are very focused on. And green economy, I mean, of course, um, you know, renewable energy, energy efficiency, and so on. <clears throat> but also the islands have been very active in promoting the blue economy, which is around uh, uh, maximizing natural capital for coasts and oceans that can help with climate resilience, but can help with food security, and, of course, economic development. And Grenada is very pleased to be working with uh, a number of countries from around the world, a number of international uh, organizations on uh, the blue economy and blue growth, mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And we are going to be hosting uh, in May, actually, a Blue Week to look at that and to bring countries together around moving the needle on uh, on the whole issue of ocean health and ocean wealth. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is something we're very pleased to be involved with. And, and for anyone that's not familiar with the concept of the blue economy and natural capital, are there any great books that you'd recommend for anyone that's looking to learn about those sorts of subjects for the first time? Sure. I mean, I, I think uh, there's a lot. There are books rec- uh, that have already been written on natural capital. I uh, don't have them in front of me. I can't remember the names at the moment. But let me say this. Um, certainly in terms of the blue economy, there are two blue economies. There's one blue economy that simply refers to the circular economy, and that's sort of you know using waste uh, products and, and turning it into something that's, uh, that can go back into the economy. And there's a blue economy, which I've just described to you, previously, which is around the coasts and oceans. Uh, not many books are available. This is thinking around this is still very new. Uh, countries like uh, Mauritius and the Seychelles have, uh, have actually put out books uh, on it. Um, but these are sort of national views on, on, on what the blue economy means to them. Uh, Grenada is not far behind, and we're defining our entire blue economy strategy as we speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and we wish you best of luck with that event in May. It's 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 interesting to see some of these new sort of areas of thought um, emerge around how um, we all develop as a nation. And so um, we would definitely love an update on, on how that event goes in May and sort of any of the outcomes that are that are out of that event. Would be delighted. Yeah. Well, that's it for the questions I had for today. And I just wanted to extend a big thank you on behalf of all of our listeners for really helping us frame some of the nuance of the challenges around small island states, as well as some of the positive stories about the impact that they're having uh, and the and the, the sort of contributions that they've made to some of these major agreements like COP21. I think you did a, a fantastic job of educating our listeners. Sure. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care, Angus. All the best. Take care. Bye-bye. Our next interview examines some of the technologies that are going to be used to solve some of the challenges faced by small island states. Kaylee Taylor, Student Energy co-founder, will be interviewing HydroStore, a very innovative technology startup working to solve some of the offshore and water-based energy storage challenges currently facing our world. I'm joined on the line this morning with Curtis Van Wellingham, the CEO of HydroStore, based in Toronto, Canada. HydroStore has a project, an energy storage project, that they're running in Aruba, and Kurt has graciously agreed to come talk to us a little bit about it. Thanks for being here, Kurt. Thank you, Kaylee. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me exactly what your technology at HydroStore is? Yeah, HydroStore has created an energy storage solution based on compressed air, but what makes our technology a little unique is where we put the air. So we've designed an underwater air cavity that uses natural occurring water pressure uh, to keep the air pressurized. So it's like a giant underwater air battery. Uh, on land, we've got a mechanical system. It draws atmospheric air, compresses it, sends the air deep under a lake or ocean where it's stored at pressure. And then to discharge, a valve's open, the air comes up, uh, spins a turbine, and reproduces power. So in a That's generally how it works. Oh, cool. And so for our listeners who aren't as familiar with energy storage, why is energy storage important to a sustainable energy future? Um, The big challenge with renewable energy, so if we want to go to a renewable grid, 100% sustainable uh, energy infrastructure, 
Uh, there's the challenge of intermittency. So the you know, wind energy only produces when the wind is blowing, sun when the sun, solar when the sun is shining. And so to to be able to store that and have it available when you need the energy, uh, that's really the role that energy storage plays. So typically uh, an electrical grid you know, doesn't need any storage for the first 5-10%. Then you start needing a little bit, otherwise you waste a fair bit of renewable energy. And then to get past, say, 50% renewable energy, uh, energy storage is really a core piece of what's required to make that happen. Uh, I see. So it's fundamental for integrating renewables onto the grid. That's right. There's many other applications like it can be used as backup power and different things, but that's at, at the crust of it. Perfect. And so we understand that you have a project in Aruba that I mentioned earlier, and this uh, show that we're doing today is on small island states. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that project and what stage it's currently at? Sure. So HydroStore, uh, me and my business partner founded the company in, in about 2010. Uh, we've spent a number of years, you know, engineering the solution, confirming um, that it would work properly. We've now built uh, the world's first underwater compressed air energy storage project in Toronto with Toronto Hydro. So we put that into service late last year, late at the end of 2015, and we're testing it and optimizing it uh, now. The contract we signed in Aruba in 2013, uh, they really had an issue with um, having surplus wind at night and not enough power in the day. And so they said, this is a perfect solution for us. Um, we want to be your kind of first commercial customer. And the uh, agreement that we have with them is that uh, once we get this Toronto facility working smoothly, they come up, inspect it, confirm it meets um, the contractual agreement that we have, uh, and then uh, we are on the clock to get their facility up and running. Oh, great. And about how much power um, are these projects storing? So the one we built in Toronto uh, powers about 350 homes, um, and that's that's kind of a small demonstration, I would say. Uh, a typical facility would uh, power on the low end uh, kind of 1,000 homes, uh, all the way up to, to tens of thousands of homes. Okay, great. And then in your since you've been working with Aruba, so in your experience with Aruba, what makes small island states unique from an energy perspective? There's a number of things that make island states unique. They're really the um, at the forefront of this. Um, a typical grid can average out by importing from neighboring states or provinces, and uh, there's such a big, massive grid that you know solar in one state. You know, when a cloud cover gets covered by another state where it's still sunny, uh, islands don't have that option. They're isolated. Uh, it's a it's the island grid is very limited in geographic space. The other aspect is they don't have often um, the geographic features for pumped hydro. Uh, they're not big enough for natural or for nuclear power, and um, they don't have natural gas, which can be used as a substitute for storage to just uh, you know fill in whenever clouds come or the wind dies down. So there's a whole bunch of things that are unique that make islands um, different than a mainland grid. The other aspect is because they ship in diesel, uh, which is a predominant energy source there, it's very expensive. So moving to renewables um, is very, um, the business case is very strong for islands, so they tend to be leading the charge on that front. 
great. That's very interesting. Well, thank you so much for sharing uh, information about your project and what small island states have meant in your application. I think I can speak for all of our listeners when I say that we're excited to see how it, it turns out. Um, I'll be getting some resources from you to post on the Student Energy blog so that people can check out more about HydroStore and about your project and follow along as it develops. So thanks so much, Kurt. Okay, thank you very much. Any conversation related to small island states also needs to account for the finance and economic considerations of developing climate resilient economies and developing and deploying new technologies in these regions. I'm very excited to have an interview with OPEC, who's leading the charge in rallying private finance to small island states around the world. I'm joined by John Morton, who's the Chief Operating Officer for OPEC. Uh, and John, maybe the, the first thing I can ask you to do is introduce our, our listeners to, to what is OPEC as an organization and what role do you serve in, in the global energy context? Great. Sure. Thanks, John, for the uh, invitation to be part of the program today. Um, first of all, OPEC is the uh, Overseas Private Investment Corporation. We are the U.S. government's development finance institution, uh, which means that our mission in life uh, is to catalyze um, U.S. foreign direct investment into uh, emerging markets around the world, sector tools, uh, to affect positive development outcomes around the world. And, and you bring up foreign direct investment not specifically being themed around sort of energy or energy projects. And so maybe give us a bit of background on how energy fits into your guys' larger mandate. Sure. So we are, as you as you pointed out, we're 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 kind of a full service uh, bank and insurance company. We we do projects across a host of different sectors, but energy has become uh, the single biggest part of our portfolio in recent years, and specifically renewable energy. Uh, we we lend about four billion dollars a year, so you can do the math and figure out that you know it's a pretty good chunk of of investments that's going into supporting uh, energy projects around the world. And obviously, as as you and I'm sure your listeners uh, understand. Uh, energy is the uh, is the basis of of, uh, of 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 the economy in in most countries, and particularly in emerging markets where there's such a a dearth of energy and and reliable energy. Um, it's really the the building block for you know subsequent economic growth. Mm-hmm. And and has this been a growing area of your portfolio? Maybe could you give us a sense of what the energy investment was, say five to ten years ago versus today? Sure. So energy has always been a pretty healthy part of OPEC's portfolio. The exciting thing from our perspective, consistent with the Obama administration's focus on climate finance and and greening the uh, world's uh, energy sources and supplies. When I joined OPEC about five and a half years ago, uh, we were doing somewhere around $100 million a year worth of lending to renewable energy projects. And that number has been over a billion dollars for each of the last four years. Um, So to us, that's a really that's a good news story for all kinds of reasons mainly because it shows that uh, there, there are, uh, are private sector investors and companies who now see renewable energy not as a sideshow uh, to helping solve the world's energy problems, but as the main attraction. And, and how have you guys been able to do that? So you bring up the point that um, you've been able to sort of grow the portfolio from $100 million to to a $1 billion. And, and so what role or what ability have you guys had uh, in being able to generate that additional capital growth for renewable projects? Well, I think the first thing we did was we, we declared when we came in here as a, as a leadership team uh, under the Obama administration, we said we want to prioritize and, and help uh, renewable energy projects get off the ground in emerging markets. And that was really just a question of 
really hanging out our shingle and saying that our primary focus as a development agency is going to be working on the issue that we think is the most important for development, which is uh, ensuring that uh, uh, people around the world have reliable access to energy and that that energy is as clean as possible. And that was more of a statement. That was kind of a shingle hanging exercise. And then the question was, who would come? Who would respond? And, uh, you know, as a as a demand driven bank and insurance company, there was a real question as to, as to what the response would be. And we were overwhelmed by the number of companies, uh, investors uh, who came to us saying, we're ready to invest in, uh, in wind, solar, geothermal, biomass, you name it, in countries around the world. And, uh, you know, these are small companies in many cases mm-hmm. uh, doing off-grid projects. These are large companies doing, you know, big 400 million concentrated solar, uh, 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 solar projects in, in, in South Africa. Um, they run the gamut. Small, medium, large, uh, off-grid, on-grid, uh, and all sorts of different technologies. And and get, in getting this experience, what are the the buts? So you bring up this this point that um, there's been lots of interest and lots of uh, int- the growth. Uh, you've had sort of a factor increase in the amount of investment you've made. But when you look at sort of the the infrastructure and the energy infrastructure needed um, over the next 30 years, we're talking trilli- trillions and trillions of dollars of energy infrastructure that's needed, uh, both in developed and developing worlds. And so um, what are some of those buts? What are the issues that are preventing us? So we're going from hundreds of millions to billions. What do you see as those issues that are that are going to prevent us from going to from billions to trillions in investment? Well, I think the good news is that we're well on our way. Uh, when we again, when we when we came in here a couple, you know, five years ago now, the world was a very different place, and the, the biggest difference were on the economics. And I think, again, most of your listeners will probably appreciate just how different the economics of renewable energy are today from what they were five or six years ago. I mean, eighty percent decreases in solar costs, seventy percent decreases in wind costs. So, it is no longer the case that renewable energy is a uh, is a, uh, a a high cost alternative in many regions of the world. In fact, you know the statistic that I just love uh, to, to cite is that 64 percent of new energy build capacity last year around the world was renewable energy. You know that that tells me that renewable energy is the new conventional energy. Right? Mm-hmm. Conventional means what's commonly used, and now around the world, there's more renewable energy capacity being built than fossil, and so that's to me, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing that the last five years have, have that we've seen in the last five years has been how the economics have changed completely on uh, on renewable energy. Now that doesn't mean that the job is done. There's still a lot of obstacles, and that's what you asked about. So now mm-hmm. I'll talk a little bit about what those are. Um, certainly, currency issues for us are a big deal. So if you're trying to do a solar project in, let's say, India, uh, with a power purchase agreement that that is denominated in U.S. dollars, uh, which is you know, the currency that will uh, uh, give investors most assurance that their money will be repaid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very hard for investors to get comfortable with that uh, um, with uh, a rupee-based repayment uh, mechanism at the local level. So currency issues and how you hedge currency risk is a big, big impediment uh, around the world to seeing renewable energy, uh, um, uh, you know, continue to, to expand. Um, I think there, there, there are a host of other issues, regulatory issues. Um, there's a lot of confusion, as there, as there is in, the, in our country, in the U.S., about how the utilities will react, respond, uh, and what the role of the state and local government is to provide a kind of more level playing field um, uh, for 
renewable energy to be able to compete truly on a level playing field with fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see those issues uh, all the time in countries that we operate, um, usually through the lens of fossil fuel subsidies, which continue to be quite high in most countries around the world. Mm-hmm. And and so maybe to, to switch gears a little bit too, I think I want to help for our listeners to crystallize a little bit about um, the role that finance and investment and direct investment can can have in uh, in making energy access and energy uh, clean energy a possibility. So, do you have any specific examples of of projects that you've worked through um, to, to sort of crystallize for us a little bit of the role that that OPEC can play um, and what impacts that might have had on on some of those countries? You're talking here specifically about energy access. Yeah, yeah. So I think so. It's a, it's a good question. So we think about we think about the the problems we're trying to solve in two main buckets. One is how do we get more power onto the grid, mm-hmm. um, and and that's a that's a critical problem. Um, the other is how do you provide power to the 1.3 billion people who don't have access to the current grid, and another 1.2 billion people who have very unreliable access to the current grid. And I think the exciting thing obviously, about what renewables brings to, the, to this equation uh, is that there are increasingly distributed solutions which really can get to people at the village level um, that do not require hundreds of billions of dollars worth of uh, infrastructure build-out in order for them to gain access. I think if, if you were to think about the amount of time, money, effort, uh, political bandwidth that it would take to uh, electrify Africa through high, you know, high voltage transmissions lines, it would be astounding and it would never get done. Mm-hmm. So I think what we're beginning to see now are really exciting business model innovations of entrepreneurs who are figuring out how to use, for example, the mobile telephone payment network to uh, allow prepayment uh, themes on solar roofing solutions, solar rooftop solutions for uh, the, the household and, and even village level. So OPIC has supported a company called Novo Lumos, that's, um, that is doing um, uh, solar rooftop solutions in Nigeria. Uh, we've supported uh, Simpa Energy, which is a company that's doing something uh, quite similar in, in India. We were a very early supporter of Husk Energy, which is a, a, a group using a biomass local uh, off-grid solution uh, also in India. Uh, and then we've supported a couple other con- uh, uh, companies in, uh, in, in Africa. One of, them, one of them is a company called Powerhive, which is doesn't simply have a rooftop level solution. It's kind of, kind of got a village mini grid uh, solution for how to electrify a, a, um, you know, a village at a time as opposed to a house at a time. And I think you do a good job of framing the fact that um, I've heard this sort of emergent conversation uh, lately around people saying that uh, the technologies that are going to get us to a sustainable energy future are already here. Like there's, there's not... Um, like the conversations that have always been, they've been 20 years out for 50 years now around nuclear fusion and around sort of alternative technologies that don't exist. Like I think the the fact that there's such interest in investing in what's already here today um, and that we're not dealing with these unsolvable problems of how do we do these sorts of things. And so uh, it's really great to get your perspective and he, to hear that um, it's not rocket science, uh, what it takes to, to electrify and, and to, to bring energy access to a lot of these nations. I would say, look, I agree with you, I, I think 92% of the way. I think the, the 8% where I'd say I, I, I definitely think that it, it has been through continued innovation and investment in technologies that we have been able to see uh, price points continue to come down in the, the key technologies that we're benefiting from now. So, um, you know, the, the cost of a, of a wind turbine has come down 
but the cost of a wind turbine uh, of, of a kilowatt hour has come significantly d- down because of the increases in uh, capacity of, of turbines. Uh, similarly, the efficiency, the efficiency increases on PV uh, cells has led to a unit cost decrease on solar. I think the biggest, you know, the potential biggest, uh, next biggest barrier uh, and exciting area is on is in storage, obviously, mm-hmm. which uh, which where we also have seen costs come down, but not quite as precipitously as I think we are soon to. And when the storage nut is cracked further, then that is really going to revolutionize how. Uh, you know, the intermittency issues that we have currently with much of the solar and wind investments that have been put in place. So I would say we, we certainly need continued innovation, but the current sets of technologies that we have in front of us can get us a long way to solving, I think, the, the ambitious goals that we put in front of ourselves at Paris uh, for, for, you know, a 1.5 degree world. Mm-hmm. And, and so aside from, from technology and storage, what are is there is there a single thing that you wish uh, for the world? If, if there was uh, a particular policy or market lever, are, are there things that you would advocate for that would make it easier to do your work? Uh, there, there's 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 many many many. I think I think honestly, I think the biggest impediment at this point is a mental one, where I think there is a mindset among <clears throat> far too many people that renewable energy continues to be. Uh, again, I said it earlier, a, a sideshow as opposed to the main event. Mm-hmm. We are now in a world, we, we have passed the marker where uh, investments in fossil fuels will ever again be as high as investments in renewable energy. So that is behind us. That era of fossil fuel dominance from an annual incremental investment period is in the rearview mirror. And I don't think that's well recognized. And I think until that's well, well recognized, we will continue to treat renewable energy in our in our dialogues, in our in our uh, in our policymaking discussions, in our regulatory decision-making processes as kind of a, a nice-to-have as opposed to a here-and-now must-have. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is a mind-shift change that all of us have to work in helping policymakers, regulatory bodies, uh, investors realize that the game is the game is on. Um, the uh, investor co- uh, collaborative coalition. Um, and the amount of capital that is now realizing uh, how exposed it is to stranded asset issues by uh, how heavily uh, they are invested in, in in fossils and in particular coal is amazing. I think you're going to see a seismic move by pension funds and other forms of real institutional investments out of some of the more heavily polluting fossil fuels in the coming months, not in the coming years. And that's going to drive increased investment into the technologies that uh, and the deployment of, of, of these technologies that we um, you know, that we care so much about. So I have to ask, how can we get you on the board of NRG and get David Crane back? <laughs> <laughs> well, David Crane is a, David Crane is a, was, a, was, a, was a super leader and, uh, you know, a, a good friend of the, uh, of the field and certainly of OPEX as well. And uh, we, we certainly imagine he'll have many good things to come in his, in his very bright and, and promising, you know, career so far. We at Student Energy have a, a very close relationship to energy and one of our co-founders was working in the, the Green Co. before it got uh, kiboshed. And so we we had sort of a direct personal engagement with the vision that was there and and the fact that it was a very uncomfortable conversation to have. It, it, it's not easy to tell people that 
the way things have been done for 80 or 100 years is going to be different and that it's going to happen fast. And so um, I, I think it, it is crucial that there are leaders like yourself that are in positions of, of importance that are echoing those messages and, and bringing to the forefront um, the, the role that pace and, and innovation and finance will play in these because uh, it, the world is changing whether we want to or not. And so uh, we're, we're very happy to have people like yourselves working on this. I appreciate appreciate that, and 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 thanks to all you folks for doing. Um, it, it sounds uh, uh, trite to say it, but it is tr- truer now than uh, than ever from the perils and the and the dangers that that the that the current older generation has uh, has helped put us in here. Uh, and I include myself in that generation. So um, many thanks to you and 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 the, and the folks listening for uh, making this part of your career and your passion going forward. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, John. We really appreciate it. Our last interview is not specifically related to small island states, but explores the new and emerging world of green bonds. I felt that this was very relevant to this subject matter because it's exploring means of distributed finance for distributed generation projects and is a means of fundamentally changing the conversation about how small communities, individual projects, and new technologies can finance themselves to make a difference in the world of energy and climate change with respect to small island states, large states, and all nations around the world. I'm excited to welcome David Berliner, who's the CEO of CoPower, who's recently issued Canada's first green bond for Canadian investors. So welcome to the show, David. Thanks. Great to be here. So I'm going to sort of uh, make you do my job in educating our audience on, first and foremost, what is a green bond? So the bond market has been around forever. Uh, Maybe give us a bit of background on what exactly makes something a green bond. Uh, Sure. So uh, globally, last year in 2015, we saw uh, about... um, 30 billion of, of climate bonds and, and 1 billion of specifically green bonds issued in Canada, uh, about 65 billion uh, worldwide. And a green bond uh, is like a, a bond that your uh, listeners know about, backed by either a company, uh, backed by a government, or backed by a specific pool of assets that uh, has a, a payment obligation. And the thing that differentiates a green bond from a, a regular bond is the fact that it has certain green and or, or climate positive attributes. Um, this could be green real estate. It could be green uh, energy and clean energy. Um, and uh, and what we've seen is that there's a, a growing demand from investors for bonds that have good yields, and increasingly investors looking for things that have this green uh, attributes as well. And, and when it comes to green attributes, uh, maybe we can use that to dovetail into what's the, the CoPower story. So if you could maybe give us a bit of background on, on what CoPower is as an organization um, and what specifically this green bond is focused around. Uh, so CoPower is an online investment platform that makes it easy and simple to invest in green energy. Uh, on our site at, at copower.me, investors can come on and see our our products, including this first green bond. Uh, and what we're trying to do is do the, the heavy lifting on our side, the, the sourcing, the, the structuring, and the vetting of uh, underlying loans to clean energy infrastructure assets and make them simple and accessible to the average investor across Canada. So the first bond uh, that we issued last week is a uh, 5% five-year bond. Uh, it's backed by a small pool of loans to uh, solar rooftop projects in Ontario under the Ontario government's Feed-in-Tariff Green Energy Act program. 
as well as an energy retrofit at the Harbourfront Centre, a, a large uh, cultural organization in downtown Toronto. Mm-hmm. And and why? So you talked about bringing the the level of accessibility down to sort of the everyday Canadian to participate. Why is that important? So you you rattled off the numbers at the start that there's sixty billion that that's gone on in the bond market and and globally it's a trillion dollar market. Why is it important that uh, the the threshold come down for the average Canadian to be able to participate? Well, Sean, for for two reasons. Uh, one is we're seeing increasingly a, an appetite from retail investors across the country for a few things, for, for products that have a yield, um, increasingly important in the market today, uh, two, for products that are, are uncorrelated to other parts of a portfolio, um, specifically uh, the stock market, which has been up and down and up and down, um, and three, more and more investors are asking themselves and their advisors, what is in my portfolio? What is it actually that I own? And um, a lot of people are saying, I want that portfolio to align with some of my values. I'd want to be investing in green uh, and in a, a clean energy economy for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, there's not a lot of products that are accessible to that retail level. And what we're trying to do is make it easy and simple for those investors to, uh, to find and, and have these products. The second reason that, that these bonds are important is because what we're doing is focusing on energy that's at the community level. So oftentimes we'll find bonds that are are backing very large infrastructure uh, assets. And what we're doing at Copower is filling a a, a gap in the clean energy market where a smaller community-level projects, community uh, generation of solar, community uh, scale, energy efficiency, changing out LED light bulbs, things like that, those types of projects have a harder time lining up financing. So what we can do is match those investors that are looking for that type of yield product with a green uh, attribute with the demand from the projects for that type of financing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's fantastic to see that this finally does exist. It's 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 too bad it took until 2016 for this sort of opportunity to come about, but uh, we definitely congratulate you guys on the launch. And so for, for any of our listeners that are, are interested in learning more about CoPower or potentially investing themselves, um, where can they go or, or who do they need to talk to to, to get this on their radar? Uh, so the way to get started is to head over to copower.me. Uh, click on the uh, the Get Started button and uh, go through our, our online investment process. We've got all the offering documents and uh, everything online, and we try to make it as sim- seamless and simple as possible. Okay, well, we wish you guys best of luck in rolling out CoPower, and uh, we, we hope to have you back on a future show to hear about how uh, some of the investments went and, and, and as you guys grow as an organization. Well, thanks again for having me. Perfect. Take care, David. That brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and I've been the host of the past hour of programming. Energy Voices is produced by Sean Collins and Kai Sinclair, with production assistance from Janica Chavez, Kabir Ned Carney, and Kaylee Taylor.